Welcome to Wisdom of Crowds. I'm your co-host, Shadi Hamid. We've got a pretty cool episode for you guys today. Our special guest is Sam Adler-Bell. He's a writer in New York City, a very good writer, I might add. And he is the co-host of an excellent podcast called Know Your Enemy. And you guys should all check that out. Um, We'll include a link in the show notes. So what we talk about is a whole bunch of things, but we are focusing on the rise of what might be called the new right or the new new right. Why are their ideas attractive to some people? What do they believe? What animates their worldview? We also talk about to what extent they're dangerous, in quotation marks, or actually dangerous. Um, Are they anti-democratic? And how do they view the culture war that has been unfolding in America, a culture war that they themselves are a major part of? What's really great about this, as I think you'll see, is Sam is on the left and unabashedly so, but he approaches the subject of the new right in a serious intellectual way. He talks to them directly and reports on what they think. And I think that's part of what we try to model on Wisdom of Crowds, how instead of condemning or um, persuading people to come to our side, we try to ask why do people believe what they believe and to try to understand them in good faith, even if we have profound disagreements with them. This is a, an hour and a half extravaganza of insight and analysis So we're dividing it into two parts. Part one will be available for free to everyone. Uh, Part two is for subscribers only. If you're interested in subscribing, we would love for you to join us. Um, You can do that by going to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe. Without further ado, Sam Adler-Bell. So the truth is, cool. we, may, we may have already cut in before this. So, Shadi, go ahead, introduce. Ah, <laughs> uh, I see. Yeah, well, Sam, uh, uh, welcome. So, you guys are so tricky on this podcast. <laughs> well, the, the third person that you guys hear is a special guest, Sam Adler-Bell. And it, it, Sam, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why we might want to talk to you. One of them is you wrote an incredible piece um, for the New Republic, The title is catchy, too. So the title is The Radical Young Intellectuals Who Want to Take Over the American Right. Uh Uh-huh. Yes. (laughs) It's kind Um, of catchy. It's kind of a mouthful. What's interesting, too, is that um, I think you're you're one of our few proper lefty guests that we've had on recently. I don't know if you recall, uh, unless you're like a huge fan of Wisdom of Crowds, but we had a succession of Catholic um, right-wing folks um, on the podcast over the spring and summer. So we had uh, Ross Douthat, Sohrab Amari, and then Michael Brendan Doherty as like a sort of trifecta. Nice. Yeah, you would have probably loved to hang out with us. (laughs) Well, I've had Ross on... Yeah. We had Ross on our podcast, and uh, you know when when he's not upset with me, uh, Sarab will DM um, with me sometimes. So I, I, I mean, I'm fascinated by these guys. Obviously, that's why I wrote this piece. Um, uh, yeah. Whether you know whether uh, I, 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 it's a lot of pressure to represent the like entire left um, on your podcast here, but. Um, <laughs> I'm the right man for the job, so... Um. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, so your piece is quite... Uh, it it has a kind of dark, foreboding, and ap- apocalyptic tone to it, not because of anything that you emphasized in particular, but just because the topic sort of brings that to the fore. And I'll just quote two things that I think capture that vibe, um, and I'll probably just quote these things in a dramatic way to emphasize the effect. Okay. Sure. <laughs> and he, here, are, here are two quotes from, from right-wing folks that Sam interviewed for his piece. Okay. We're in the battle at... Okay. <laughs> okay. Try again. We're, we're, yeah, yeah. We're in the battle at the end of time, and the Prince of Darkness is already at the door. And just to clarify to listeners, I believe the Prince of Darkness being referenced here is not Joe Biden, but Satan. So it's pretty intense. <laughs> it's not. It's not. Wait, what was the Prince of Darkness in the neocon era? Uh, Richard Pearl, right? 
Wasn't that his name? Yeah. 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 Oh, that's it old is. school. Yeah. 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 Old school. Okay. Here's another. Um, here's another quote. I think the vast majority of people feel that this is the end. We've either got to take control or all is lost. Anyway, this is a, just a lead in. So Sam, maybe just for those, for the many sure. people out there who um, maybe haven't heard of the new right, this particular phrase to describe a movement and may not necessarily, although they should, but they may not read your piece and they wanna learn more about this yeah. new movement of right-wing intellectuals, how would you sort of break it down in, in layman's terms if you had to sort of sum up the movement and what you found out about them? Yeah, okay, so um, this uh, this new right, I mean, it's even to just to start with new right is a little annoying because it's tough because there's already been like two or three new rights, um, but I think in the piece I said they're being called rather unimaginatively the new right. Um, <laughs> but this new right, they're young, uh, they're mostly religious, they're populist, um, they're culture warriors. Uh, they feel that the existing conservative movement has not um, fought the culture war, prosecuted the culture war hard enough. Um, they're much more comfortable with using state power, um, mechanisms of the bureaucracy and executive power to enforce like a moral orthodoxy on the public. Um, they're, they're dissatisfied with sort of the old school uh, Reaganite fusionist consensus where, you know, you have a private... Uh, Christian morality and a public liberalism. Um, a lot of them are not liberals. Um, some of them are post-liberals or they're Catholic integralists, meaning that they um, have sympathy for like a more theocratic uh, uh, American order. Um, and they, 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 their problem with liberalism is that, um, or, liber or especially like liberalism and its libertarian guise, is that it doesn't have a thick enough, a specific enough concept of the common good at its center. Um, and so it's sort of empty, soulless, um, and, and will always, it always is open to um, leading to the things that they really hate, which is sort of secularism, the kind of anti-racist equity agenda, wokeness, as, as they will call it, um, and this sort of progressive, um, you know, authoritarian progressive uh, uh, hegemony that they feel has taken over all of American life, you know, with the exception of like the Supreme Court and a few hours on Fox News a week. <laughs> um, I, 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 mean, if, I probably missed some of it, but that's, that's the essence. No, that's I mean, good. Much, that's a good go ahead. place to start. Um, and I think what's really cool about the piece is that you're, you don't, apologize for the fact that you disagree with these people profoundly you are on the left of the left you believe you believe in a different kind of agenda but you're able to go into this piece and interview members of the new right and to let them speak in their own words and to not condemn you're really there to understand what's driving them and what animates their worldview and that's not always an easy thing to do i think folks on the left generally have difficulty taking the right seriously as an intellectual mm -hmm. force. And, and you were able to do that. Um, but how frightened, to what extent are you frightened about the new right? If, if someone on the left is looking at some of these folks and what they're saying, what level of panic do you think is appropriate? Um, <laughs> or should we well, just not panic and they're just, uh, and we should hang out and get to know them and no. have seminars together. <laughs> I have them on your podcast. Um, <laughs> well, I'll say this. I sort of to address the first part of your comment there. Like I, I do think that I deliberately approach the article in a way that I don't find all that much in the liberal, especially left-wing press um, when they write about the right, especially the kind of Trumpy right, um, which is that, um, I don't know, it's, <laughs> uh, you, you know Steve Saylor, uh, unfortunately you probably do. Um, yeah, he, he, uh, he has this line, um, I think he used it many years ago to describe the way that the left writes about the right as the point and sputter approach. Hmm. Uh, and which is to say that like every time you, um, 
describe some right wing idea, you have to point and sputter and say that, but that's so bad and that's so bad. Um, and I think, um, you know, I mean, I guess there's a place for that in like opinion writing. Um, but, uh, for the purposes of this piece where I was trying to like, let the reader into the kind of intellectual life world of these young, strange thinkers, um, it was much more, it was a much more interesting challenge and I think much more effective, um, to like let them speak in their own words, describe, uh, describe their kind of intellectual, um, preoccupations. Uh, I try to actually understand them and communicate them in, in language that my reader would understand and, um, and not to like <laughs> quote, not to each time they say something say, and I think that's bad, you know, yeah. cause like, that's just stupid. That's like really, uh, it's, it's very common and I find it uh, very annoying. Um, and, on, and like, it, who, who is that really for? It's like to flatter the moral sensibility of the reader and not for them to actually learn. Um, and so, uh, I didn't do that. Uh, as for the non-stylistic part of your question, like, uh, how worried am I? Um, I mean, I tried in the piece to make it clear that there are, there's kind of these overdetermining factors of the ways in which they, um, are, that they, they do, that even though they are, they are this kind of strange elite, the pro product of, you know, the same kind of elite universities that, um, we see like many of the, uh, sort of democratic party apparatchiks and propagandists coming from, um, so they're, they're, they're not, and they have like really strange ideas that don't necessarily have a sort of mass base. Um, but I, I suggest that just as I think you guys will sympathize with this argument that just as sort of kind of a, a kind of progressivism that's well to the left of the median Democrat and certainly of the median American has, um, taken over, uh, the democratic party, the same kind of thing um, can happen on the right. And I think um, that uh, the prospects for these people having a, enormous influence in the future over conservative institutions is, 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 a, is a good one, a good prospect for them, because they're highly educated, motivated, young elites, uh, and highly educated, young, motivated elites take over institutions. That's what they do. Um, and so uh, there's that. So they're going to have an influence over the Republican Party no matter what. Um, and the other thing is that, um, because of relating to the quotes that you read earlier, um, these folks, uh, and I think this is one of the things that I was really trying to get across to a, a liberal reader is that, um, they really feel this sense of like, uh, the war for America's soul has already been lost, you know, like the, the progressive woke, um, totalitarian uh hegemony is 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 in place uh and we uh and and that the left really wants to destroy america you know and so and so if you really believe that and i think some of them really do sometimes it's just rhetoric but if you do um then the kinds of things that are justified in it to save america's soul to to refound america on its proper footing or even to you know force uh, a, a country that's become that's lost its way and become this sort of licentious liberal hellscape to um, to 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 be moral again that all kinds of all kinds of measures that don't really aren't really confined by liberalism or the constitution become on the table because what would you what's not justified if we're if we've already sort of lost out um or that america is is imperiled in its existential in an existential sense so um i think there's an appetite for anti-democratic um strategies because of how severe they see uh the crisis and um and so that's that's concerning. So, too. so Sam, let me ask you like this. Um, I think I, I, I want to talk more about the the anti-democratic stuff uh, a little bit further down the line, because Shadi and I talked about it a couple of weeks back um, about, you know, what's the right amount of worry to have about. Yeah, that uh, that, I would love to talk about that. I'd love for you guys to tell me. Oh, I mean, we don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, and, yeah. and I, it's something I think we both struggle with on this and be good to sort of like 
tease that apart a little bit. We'll have a little just, group therapy session. Yeah, on exactly. <laughs> you know, or maybe maybe therapy, maybe just like we buck each other up and be like, yeah, it's not that bad. It'll be all right. <laughs> or we just, you know, I, I am yeah, yeah, I am, yeah, yeah. I am in the Balkans, so we can uh, we could also spiral into a <laughs> sure, sure, into sure. a deep hole. Um, no, no, you know, it's uh, uh, it's just sort of one thing that struck me just even now as you were answering. Uh, there's a quote in there. Uh, I forget who you're. Uh, interviewing, but uh, someone said if you had interviewed young people at a Jacobin reading club in 2014 and printed that in TNR, they would have sounded pretty crazy to most people. Uh, but now he said the, their sentiments are repeated by elected members of Congress. And, you know, the thing that strikes me that's different about the right and about a lot of these people you write about, including, quite frankly, Steve Saylor, who you're right, I think, has a certain kind of influence in the... He's one of the people that everybody on the right reads, but they don't like to admit it. No, I remember even, <laughs> quite frankly, I mean, there was, you know, I, I forget if, like, Ross wrote about him, Ross Douthat wrote about him, or, like, referenced him, and then there was some sort of scandal way back when that, like, oh, my God, Ross reads Steve Saylor. I don't remember that little kerfuffle way back in the day, but there's something about that as well. Sure, like, as as establishment of conservative as Ross Douthat reads Steve Saylor, you know? It's okay. a, for the audience who may not know, I mean, he, that whatever else about Steve Saylor, one thing that he would admit to and that is true is that he he, he believes in a sort of uh, her, her inheritance, a racial inheritance in intelligence and various kinds of other outcomes. I mean, he's a, he's a, he's, a, he's got, he, uh, <laughs> the reason that he's sort of persona non grata is because of his uh, sympathies for different kinds of race science. Correct, correct. I mean, like, really, really hardcore stuff. And it should be clear also now that we're not slandering Ross by association. Like, it's not like yeah. Ross supports uh, no, no, no. Yeah, Steve yeah. Saylor or anything like that. But, you know, I mean, he's, he's someone that is, uh, you know, out there in so many ways and so outside the ma mainstream. But, you know, if you uh, are at all sort of interested in this, like, crazy idea world and, you know, I mean, like, important people have read him and are aware of him. Um, but, you know, the thing that strikes me that's different, maybe, and, you know, uh, tell me what you think about it, is, sure. is, is um, uh, Steve Saylor predated Trump, um, but then Trump come, came out of nowhere and owed nothing to the intellectual wing of this party. Now, of course, sure. once, once he rose, you know, on the internet, there was this whole big ah, you know, this is like, uh, we've been saying this forever, you know, the Messiah has come to deliver yeah. us. And like, it really was this kind of, you know, weird quasi-religious sort of moment for them. But, you know, the reality is, is that they were irrelevant to Trump's rise, all of them. Yeah. Um, and in fact, uh, uh, Trumpism as it exists right now, they're still sycophantic of it, right? I mean, Trumpism is still very yeah. much like a cult of personality, very much a, call it a, uh, a populist revolt of some sort that, you know, needs its tribune and it's a political movement, but it's not an intellectual movement in a lot of ways. Yeah. Whereas what's interesting to me about, you know, um, Jacobin in, in 2014 uh, and Jacobin is a left wing, just so it's, yeah. it's a left wing magazine Yeah, that is like pretty socialist. As you might imagine by the name Jacobin. It's <laughs> completely, it's completely socialist. Yeah. 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 No, but, but you know what I mean? Like there's a, there is a, on the left, at least there's a real uh, infrastructure of ideas that in fact huh. Huh. was, was, was being, you know, uh, uh, incubated and, you know, found their, their tribunes in Bernie and AOC, let's say, um, mm. But in fact, the interesting thing in the last elections is that Biden won, I mean, I don't know, maybe f feel free to disagree with this, but, but, but despite these people, right? I mean, like mm -hmm. the, the, yeah. the left didn't want Biden. Biden yeah. was elected by the sensible centrist Democrats that wanted us kind of return to normalcy by arguably by the most conservative black Democrats that wanted, yeah. you know, that. So I don't know, play around with that a little okay. bit, that sort of thing. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I mean, I think as somebody who's been on the left for a long time, well, you know, relatively speaking, the th <laughs> relative to a lot of people who just, um, you know, found out about socialism when Bernie ran for um, president in 2016, um, the the idea that like, uh, that there's a kind of clean sort of um, intellectual infrastructure in which Jacobin's ideas are incubated and then end up in positions of influence in the Democratic Party. Um, 
<laughs> I, I, wish, I wish that was more true, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, um, I, I think, uh, like, we've got the left, the proper left, uh, you know, people who are sort of associated with the Bernie wing of the party. There's it's still pretty few and far between, and we've been trying for a long time, you know, like the, 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 the you know, outsider um, or, or sort of minor partner, junior partner in the coalition uh, strategy, um, you know, hasn't borne that many fruit. But anyway, that's just to say, yes, that's just to be a little pity party about the left for a second. But mm. um, I think uh, you're right about Trump's, uh, sort of attenuated, strange relationship with the conser- the conservative intellectuals who've um, come to champion him or try to provide some kind of sophisticated intellectual scaffolding for Trumpism, um, which is how I think of a lot of these people, um, including um, people like Amari and the Claremont Institute and uh, so on. Um, I think one thing about what happened with Trump was that yeah, he he sort of bucked the establishment, said fuck you. It was not um you know, it was not an intellectual movement. Um but a lot of forces within conservative politics and conservative intellectual life um who had been sort of on the losing end of the stick for a long time, um who had uh sort of felt like they didn't get their their due during the kind of like reign of Reaganism or much less sort of um, uh, Bushism and um, neocon hegemony, like they. Uh, so 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 what I mean by that is like people like the paleocons, uh, people who are more like Pat Buchanan style uh, conservatives, uh, even people like the Claremont Institute, which has always been kind of this kind of like fringy populist, super hardcore Christian. Um, uh, you know, West Coast Straussian uh, readout of uh, sort of like political philosophy nerds who want <laughs> the Republican Party to be um, more, um, yeah, more traditionalist, more Christian. That and that and then and then that's also sort of so. So my point, what I was going to say is that like Trump by breaking it open and like mean and sort of attracting in his administration like all these misfit toys of like bureaucrats uh, who couldn't get jobs in previous administrations and uh, and so on. Like the same kind of thing happened in the intellectual sphere where some of the folks who were kind of on the fringe uh, and who had been, you know, felt like looked down upon by the, the previous reigning era of conservative politics kind of got <laughs> kind of was like, yeah, no, Trump's our guy because, because he's saying screw you to the same people that have looked down on us. Um, and uh, and there was like an affinity, a, a, a plausible affinity, especially if you squint between Trump's agenda being more nativist, more nationalist, um, you know, kind of protectionist and isolationist. Um, you know, you know, with from, with with that paleocon um, nationalist right. For me, it's like you know the the early years of Trump. I remember like the the maybe for me. I, I haven't actually thought this through, but just like hearing you talk right now, that for me, maybe the most potent and therefore terrifying moment of Trump was actually his uh, his inauguration where he read Bannon's speech. Yeah. Because that to me was maybe the closest moment in the whole damned four years where there was actually like a, a really nasty intellectual substance to Trumpism that yeah. was articulated in a way that was both very clearly resonant. Like I remember listening to it and being like, holy shit, this yeah. is absolutely hitting a lot of real nerves, a lot of like, uh, you know, uh, sore spots, weaknesses in our system, real iniquities. And he's doing it in a way that is really, you know, like bloody fangs, right? Like, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and, 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 and Bannon represented that in a way. Uh, yeah. But interestingly enough, Bannon is is also weirdly not the intellectual that these people are that you're writing about. No, no, that's true. Um, Bannon is uh, sort of uh, his own man. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, no, I mean, but I mean, he certainly like has uh, kind of affinities with fringy right wing 
figures, including some people who would we might consider intellectuals. But um, no, I mean, it's true. It's it's. It, we, I, I think it's very. I'm, I we can't. It'd be very hard for us together to settle the question of the relationship between conservative intellectuals and the conservative base because it's basically been the big question for kind of people who think a lot about the right for a long, long time. Um, and like, is it always the case that there's this kind of little cloistered um, bow-tied elite who think that they're, um, that there's some kind of like big intellectual project behind American conservative politics, uh, but the, that the, but that the real energy, the thing that fuels it is this much baser libidinal, um, you know, off, often kind of vicious uh, sentiment, um, um, or at least resentful sentiments, if not always vicious, but um, that actually that is, is actually the motor of the thing. You know, the mm. idea of like riding riding the sort of populist tiger uh, as as always being sort of the, the way that the the conservative elite intellectual class functions, and then sometimes they get thrown off the tiger, as with Trump. Um, I you know, I, no, I'm not saying that that's even exactly the right way to think about it it's just it is very hard to figure out and so look if if trump runs again um wins the nomination again like if it, it, are these people that i wrote about here going to be like um filling his administration and implementing their like kind of slightly wacky hardcore catholic um agenda in America if he wins. Um, I'm not sure. Um, I do think that there are people in this orbit who are, th who, who are concerned about um, trying to build a, a kind of pipeline for Trumpist um, or more Trumpist kind of staff, uh, both for uh, Congress and for a prospective White House. Um, you know, sort of like uh, credentialing institutions for a populist right in the way that the um, sort of more Reaganite, fusionist, libertarian, conservative movement has already. Um, and um, I think if I were them, or, you know, if I was if I was rooting for their victory, that would be where I would put a lot of focus. Um, and, uh, and 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 there are some people, you know, very concerned about that. Uh, and, you know, because I mean, like, it's just kind of looking back at the Trump administration, these people would say, um, the problem is maybe he had some more populist, nationalist, isolationist, nativist instincts, but he didn't really have the people around him to implement that or enough true believers who could have channeled his instincts into actual policy. Uh, it was only sort of a few bureaucrats who were on board. And, uh, and in, and what they would and then they had all these people like from their perspective people like um, you know his son-in-law who were way too liberal and way too institutionalist and so tried to stop him from doing all kinds of things that they would have liked him to do that's in their in their perspective and so uh, the next Trump administration they hope they could actually staff more of it with um, true believers but um, so, so yeah that's part as of it. you're saying I mean tr Trump is up, obviously has this visceral populism and nationalism that hasn't been well thought out. It's instinctive with him. And when we talk about this new right movement, we're talking about something that is more considered. And I wanna just dwell on what I think, I'd be curious what you think, Sam, what I think is the recurring theme that I see in everything that I read by the new right, about the new right. Mm -hmm. We've talked about this on the podcast with people like uh, Michael Brennan Doherty and, and Sorab conveyed this as well. And I think this is key to understanding what drives them, which is they feel that um, progressive liberalism, whatever we, we want to call it, is so all-encompassing and so dominant and that there is simply, and you, you you touched on this when you said, oh, well, all conservatives really have is a few hours of Fox News, and that only yeah. reaches a couple million people. And I think it's very difficult sometimes for liberals and just ordinary people who don't follow politics all that much to understand just how alienated um, right-wing intellectuals feel. They feel completely shut out from mainstream society 
they they feel and they they know i guess because i think it's partly true that they lost the culture war and they lost it so decisively that there's <laughs> a really profound power imbalance so liberals will sometimes be like well oh republicans have the supreme court they have yeah. they have state legislatures um they're powerful in all of these ways but what they miss is that right-wing intellectuals care about culture more than anything else. So for them, political power is important only in so far as it allows them to gain ground on culture. But they haven't been able, at least in, in mainstream life, they haven't been able to do that. And that's what makes them, I think, so aggrieved and resentful. And I think it's actually worth if not necessarily sympathizing with that, understanding that it's deeply felt and it's very real. Rod Dreher is another person who I think really conveys this. He feels that all is lost. So it's not, I don't think it's a rhetorical gambit. Some people maybe use it rhetorically, but I have no doubt that many of these, these writers and thinkers actually believe that all is lost. Yeah. And that's, in, in, in some ways, I think that's what's appealing. If I was someone who was more, um, if I really wanted to have a tribe and I was more inclined to 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 like convert to right-wing thought, and maybe some people think I am, but I will assure <laughs> them I am not. But let's say I, there is something appealing, and this is also where I think, you know, people sometimes mistake me as being overly sympathetic to some of these people, but I'm just, I'm looking at this and I'm under, I'm trying to understand why it's attractive why it's appealing because if we don't understand that then we're not going to be able to um contend contend with these ideas we'll just dismiss them out of hand and say these are a bunch of fringe crazy people i don't think they're fringe or cra- well they might be fringe and they i don't think crazy <laughs> they might be crazy <laughs> but right. there might be legitimate reasons that they yeah. have to be crazy yeah yeah yeah, I'm just curious. Like, does that sound right to you? What I just described that sounds that sounds basically right. I mean, it's just like I I, I mean I, be, I I say that now, having talked to a lot of these people, many more than I actually quoted in the piece. Um, that's that I think what you just said accurately reflects the attitude. Um, uh, I think I mean I, I, I now I'm going to read my own piece to you, but I I wrote in the piece their catastrophist sense of American affairs is difficult to fully grasp for those of us who don't feel it. It has a decidedly religious, eschatological, uh, is that how you say that? Es- es- eschatological. Es- eschatological, yeah. Eschatological. Eschatological. <laughs> it's one of those whenever words. I start, that... Whenever I say it out loud, it starts to sound like scat- scatological. Like, exactly. Scatological, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, eschatological. So. It's like electronic scatological. Yeah, That's a e- problem e- that I have e- with. E- shit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, there's words that we read and we write, but we don't actually say out loud. So I never, like there's just, yes. Yeah. And I love words. It's confusing. And I, so when I'm writing, I use all kinds of words that I've never said out loud. Um, <laughs> so yes. Uh, anyway, to say that, yeah, I agree. It's, I, and this was the thing that I encountered talking to these folks is like, you know, they really look out on the world and they see things like, a huge thing, transgender norm, you know, normativity or you know, normalization. Um, a huge, they're hugely disturbed by that. I don't feel that at all, you know. But yeah. like, I believe that you really feel that way. Um, and you see, uh, you see, just you watch TV, you watch, you look at Netflix. It's like it's full of like, you know super progressive ideas and kind of like self-congratulatorily sort of like self-satisfied uh progressive um ideologies presented in like every tv show and um sort of this 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 really deep commitment to a very particular kind of anti-racist politics which has a kind of um can't like quality to it it seems like even even as I like am a very committed <laughs> anti-racist, I have a lot of sympathies with even things that are now called critical race theory. Those are the sort of things I learned and caused me to be a leftist. But I understand that like in the way that it gets filtered down into the culture that these people who are elites, right, who live, a lot of them, they live in New York and D.C. So they're surrounded by people who they feel, who they think like, who share these ideas and when they turn on the TV and when they listen to music and they um, 
whatever you know like they they don't see uh, uh, they they see this stuff reflected back at them, and it and it makes them feel like they've like they've lost, and like there's um, something um, deeply troubling about that. And I do think you're right that they they get frustrated by the um, kind of uh, how should how should we say this? Like the 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 total lack of. Uh, empathy or sympathy on the on behalf of the left which like they they sort of say to the left like you won you won it all why do you want more you know like <laughs> <laughs> like you won the whole thing like this country is like you know it's it's, it's viscerally revolting to me in all of these ways and you still are telling me that i'm like i'm the problem when i feel like i am the most besieged strange minority which um, needs needs some kind of protection, um, and uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I think that's all. I think that's genuinely how they feel. I, I, I you know, whether that's like an accurate <laughs> uh, <laughs> reflection of reality, and whether those sympathies are justifiable, you know, that's that's you know the, the sort of the kinds of policies that become or sort of political goals that become attractive if you really feel that way like i <laughs> just because i can believe that they really feel that way doesn't mean that yeah. i think it, the way it cashes out is good i mean i i i tr like i i don't think we should be at all less invested in like um you know the uh uh the protection and health and safety of trans people so like i'm we're not going to I'm not going to be like, oh, you know, you're right. Like, it does suck that you have to watch trans people on TV. Um, we should make it harder for people to get, um, you know, healthcare or whatever. You know, I'm so that's yeah. That's but maybe another from. alternative is so if we have in fact won, and just for the purposes of this conversation, I'm identifying myself as part of the group that won mm -hmm. on the mm -hmm. left side of the spectrum. Um, so if we won then shouldn't we be magnanimous in victory to some extent? <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, shouldn't we, shouldn't we offer something uh, as a kind of olive branch? And I think what really bothers um, Republicans is Democrats not only have cultural power, but now with Biden's election, they, they have political power too. Yeah. And yet they act, like, they act like they're an opposition party. They act yeah. like they are victims and aggrieved. And I think that dissonance and, and quite yeah. frankly, incoherence is really hard for people on the right to understand. Like, do these people on the left, not, not on the left left, but on the, you know, Democrats, yeah. they don't realize that they have it pretty damn good yeah. No, I think I think that's true. I think it's funny because it's really just like the mirror image of the complaint that the liberals have, which is to say, listening to what the way we're talking about conservatives right now, there are certainly liberal progressives out there who think, well, what are you talking about? They're about to like overturn Roe v. Wade. They have a supermajority on the court. Um, they have all of these sort of uh, structural advantages in elections so that even even if they are a minority they can still wield political power blah 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 why are they so aggrieved <laughs> um, <laughs> it's just and 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 you know like look I mean there's something to be said for the fact that like there's some something about American politics in this generation past couple generations where sort of like having a really like um, uh pithily or <laughs> strongly held sense of one's own victimhood and grievance status is something that uh, grants moral authority and gives people a sense of themselves and a sense of a sense of shared identity. And so um, <laughs> that's that's going on across the political spectrum. Um, but well, so I don't know, what, like, what, I guess I guess hmm. maybe I'll ask you guys, like, what, what do you think? What, what are the what, what sorts of olive branches should should the uh, the woke oligarchy offer to um to our uh, to our poor <laughs> our poor shat upon uh, conservative uh, well peons. Okay, Demir might have some more radical ideas in mind. I'll just offer something which I think is plausible and reasonable, which is allowing conservative communities to carve out their own space on the local and state level. And if they want to live differently according to their own values, if they're able to express those preferences 
peacefully and through the democratic process, they should be able to do that. We shouldn't have a federal structure that is trying to block their sincerely held conviction, whether that is on opposition. Uh, I mean, obviously, they can't violate the Constitution. Um, So as long as they're within the law, they should be able to express their their conservative preferences on things like gay rights, abortion, whatever else it might be, without us as liberals nationally always trying to say, no, go back into your box. No, you can't do that. No, we can't even let you have power on the local level. Um, yeah. We can't let you have uh, restrict abortion on the state level, even though that is what the majority of people in your state actually want. And they keep on voting for politicians who want to restrict abortion rights, but can't because of Roe v. Wade, for example. Uh Um, That could just be a starting point for conversation to say, we don't have to, you know, we don't want you conservatives to impose on us in DC and New York City or whatever, but also, we should be able to give you some space to operate where you are dominant, where you are the vast majority of the population in certain parts of the South or the Midwest. But hold on a second. Let me let me just try I, and reframe I, this a little bit, though, guys, because it, it struck me, Sam, in your previous answer, even before you, you posed this question to us, and then even now Shadi's counter here, that I feel like we're, we're not talking about this right. Because what are we talking about here, Shadi, when we say like, we, or I don't know where I'm on, on the spectrum, whatever, like where you grant this and give the other side this and let's like, I mean, that's, that's not reality that we're living in at all. There's none of this granting. Let me, let me reframe it a little bit like this, Sam, like so what you were saying earlier about, you know, trans rights uh, and, and uh, sort of where the right is on all these things. I think like what we sh- shouldn't forget is how like gay marriage happened in this country, you yeah. know? Um, it happened because it was a certain kind of normalizing of gay culture into very boring bourgeois values. Andrew uh-huh. Sullivan was actually yeah, pretty yeah, yeah. big in this, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. Was was and then that allowed kind of the culture more broadly to say, "Oh, I have a uh, gay uh, nephew, uh, a niece, a son, a daughter, um, and you know." I know them. They're people. They're normal. And look, they they really just want to be just like us. They want that sort of thing. And you know, I, I yeah. mean, I'm not I'm not that plugged into the history of the gay rights movement. I'm I'm a pretty much a dilettante on this. But in a way, you know, it's not like the 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 uh, the sort of pride movement and the 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 marches and the you know, we're here, we're not going away, played no role. It certainly played a very important role in this. But I think it's important to remember what actually triggered the mainstreaming and the proper acceptance of all of this. So, like, if you keep this in mind and we look at sort of, you know, what you guys are talking about, you know, like liberals control the media and you have all this stuff happening in the media and then translate that into politics and into outcomes. I think basically uh, what you have here is, is that like there's, you know, the the popular culture discourse is definitely uh, dominated in large part uh, by liberals. Mm -hmm. And there's a certain kind of estrangement from the popular culture thing. But, you know, even what we were talking about earlier, politics is lagging behind that in a lot of ways. And I think that's what leads to the frustration among liberals about it. And this is politics is still where where conservatives fight this out. Now, for me, thinking about like, you know, intellectual conservatives thinking about this, I feel like they're kind of, you know, like overwrought myself because I'm not I don't I don't feel really part of that tribe either. Like yeah. I, I listen to it and I'm just like, okay guys, so you gotta watch a bunch of trans people on 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 TV and shows and you know, you find this yeah. alienating and weird. Like, okay, well don't watch the fucking TV shows. I don't give a shit, you know? Yeah. Like yeah. fight fight your goddamn like I, I just don't care. Like I don't care. Yes, yes, I, yes. I, I do think I do think where the rubber meets the road, and this is where Democrats are likely mm-hmm. to like, you know, I think feel like they have the cultural discourse and are then overreaching in other things yeah yeah is where like for example you know you see it somehow happening it's like you know it's it's this uh 
trans rights, and then you get these like weird stories. And mind you, again, this is not my beat, so correct me if this is like weird conservative agate prop or something like that. <laughs> but like, you know, it's it's parents seeing like, you know, whatever in like sports, right? And their daughters are competing with trans uh, yeah. women. And that's, they feel this is unfair. I feel like a lot of people will even be like, okay, this is pop culture trash. I can turn this out. I'll like direct my kids to Bible school and whatever. And, you know, obviously pop culture, conservatives always fight that fight with pop culture ruining their children. But that's like as old as, as, as yeah. life itself. But yeah. it's, it's when the rubber meets the road in some sort of very pragmatic way. And yeah. liberals are, feel like, you know, they have won the narrative war, which they haven't right. really because it's just pop culture. And yes. then it's it's hitting, meeting uh, like real life in a way that's upsetting people. That's like the opposite of the gay rights movement and marriage where it was like, it was, you know, basically these are normal people and we're just bringing them into it. So I don't know if I've described uh, what I think is like the back and forth on this like pop culture stuff, like culture war stuff. Yeah, I think I understand what you're saying. I, I, I think the... You have to be careful about or what I would want to be careful about is the fact that like the gay rights movement didn't start when um uh Sullivan. You know, so, yeah. yeah, it didn't start with the marriage strategy. Sure. It didn't start with the idea like if we have normal bourgeois families, then we'll be accepted. And that's you know, and like and of course there was a lot of internal uh disagreement in, in sort of the uh gay liberation movement about whether that was advisable and who would be left out and blah 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 um and and of course there was a lot of there was a long time where um the rubber hit the road <laughs> and what that meant was the rubber hitting the road in like you know i mean i don't want to be glib but like uh people uh treating gay people like shit right of course like of course. encountering gay people and hating them you know hating um, murdering all hating the murdering yeah exactly, for sure exactly. for sure exactly so yeah. it's like it's like you know, the, the, with the trans stuff, like I can see, I, 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 I totally like I, what you're describing. I think of the sort of s weird disconnect between the fact that like elite pop popular culture, sort of people who have an outsized role in shaping popular culture, have so have become so accepting, at least in their self, their account of themselves of trans people in a way that's out of step with. Uh, the public, like I, I, I see that as true. It's hard to know, like where are we in that timeline, you know? Yeah. Like of of acceptance, and and then and then and then and then like look, like then you get to a real question. It's like, like when when I talk to these, um, you know, to, to to a lot of conservatives, it's it's not like uh, like are we moving? Are we accepting people too fast? Are we not thinking about? you know, sports. It's like trans, the, the whole concept of trans is a threat to the social order, you know? Um, and again, like I, I, it's probably not true that like, you know, just some mom who is like, why is that person competing against my daughter um, thing is necessarily thinking the trans thing is a threat to the social order. And that's maybe more of an elite perspective on the problem. But um you know, it's not just like, um, are we moving too fast? It's like, are there in totally irreconcilable uh, philosophical differences? Um, and uh, and 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 which 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 you know does like suggest humility, uh, not exclusively um, uh, uh, hubris. But um, I guess. But isn't uh, it? But Sam, isn't it also that they look at these right-wing intellectuals look at liberals and they see they see liberals as not questioning their premises. So I think there is a, it's yeah, yeah, probably yeah. partly true that liberals just kind of go in, they're like, this has been decided. H history has ended on X, Y, and Z issues and they can no yeah. longer be litigated. And, and there's almost a sense that um, we don't even under, we don't even understand why so for, i actually was telling a couple people uh, th this the other night a little reading group that we had like i support i support gay marriage but if you asked me to kind of offer up a philosophical exposition of why or how i came to that conclusion i honestly would not be able to do a good job of it in part because it's just part of the air if you're a normal person who's not on the right wing of life and politics yeah. 
It kind of goes without saying. So we were never in a habit of interrogating our our own premises. Um, and I think very similar for pro-choice arguments. And what that means is progressives and liberals don't really know how to engage substantively on the philosophical and intellectual questions. I, that I might- just think, no, I mean, I, I know what you're saying. I, I think that's definitely true when it comes to people who like have just imbibed the like self-righteous Kool-Aid that like every progressive position is the morally righteous one. And so you can just take comfort in that and you never have to justify yourself. Like there are people like that in the world and they, and they probably make TV shows. Um, but like, um, I think people have, people on the left have like quite elaborate and thoughtful <laughs> and sort of like, you know, rooted in political philosophy and um, and so far and so on for uh, you know choice their their pro choice positions for gay marriage and so on, but they aren't necessarily in an idiom that is uh, satisfyingly satisfying to the right, and like that's um, that's uh, that's a que- that's an interesting problem of like. <laughs> what happens when like sort of incomparable like political and philosophical idioms encounter each other in the public square like i don't know what to do about that but like i think okay i feel bad because uh, i feel like demir's question was getting away from the elites and talking about yeah. the the people on the ground and i and i i do think that it's a problem that the that it can be a problem when um people because there is this sort of self-satisfaction about the uh, morality of the liberal position on a lot of these issues, um, there is not as much of an appreciation for why someone might just not agree. And then, um, and then I think like, so then the argument about why, you know, like trans, like trans kids in sports is really just not a big deal. It's just really not a, big deal um is it communicated as like you're a bigot because you don't see that as opposed to let's tell the stories of kids who um really are trans who are like uh who've had these like just devastating things happen to them because of the the status quo you know like not like you're a bad person you know you know what i mean like there's a difference between talking about this as like um this is how it's going to be and this is how it already is and trying to yeah i mean you know convince people in an idiom that they understand and that idiom is often and it was with gay marriage like like uh there are people uh you know people i love uh who are suffering as a result of the way that this works right now and um you know and we and we and we, and we have to kind of like you know come to some kind of and, 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 you know, you, you are saying that you'll suffer if we change it. So like, let's talk about like how to, how to, uh, agree or, you know, come to some kind of compromise about it. You know, um, I think that's exactly I, right. Yeah. I, I think like what, uh, what, um, Shadi said about, um, about gay marriage and not being able to have a, a philosophical account of it. I think that's true for a lot of people. The answer for myself and a lot of people is like, well, my sister wanted to get married to her wife. Yeah. And, <laughs> and like, like the prospect of somebody being like, no, you can't. <laughs> I'm like, no, absolutely. Fuck you. Like you, you know, I mean, not like that's the, that's the instinct I have. You know, if somebody comes to me and says, I have this sort of religious understanding of marriage and like blah, blah, blah. And very kindly, this is how I think about it. But, you know, like in terms of having to develop some kind of philosophical framework in order to justify it, I didn't have to do that either, you know, because... But, you know, that that gets it. I, I think, you know, I mean, Shadi and I, when we were talking about, uh, talking to you about this, you know, one of the things that, that I always sort of, you know, recoil back to is is that, you know, we scribblers, we we uh, we tend to overestimate the importance of ideas and things. Yeah. Um, and yeah. in a sense, it's, 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 it's you know, and, and, and politics relies on ideas to a large extent. It relies on, 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 on people who can express things and communicate. 
But, but that's not always the ideas realm as expressing things and communicating. Sometimes it's this like over conceptualizing and creating these superstructures about, yeah. you know, the stuff that, that hangs over it. And, and the successful politician is the one who does exactly what you said right now about trans people is to says it like, hey, guys, you know, they're, they're like real p stories of injustice here and, uh, and, and appeals to, to common sense, you know, intuitions that people have. That's, and they say, well, yeah. hell yeah, that's exactly what we're going to do. And what's weird about it is, is you know, I, I think it's like on one hand, you have the, the sort of ideological liberal left, which, you know, whatever controls the culture machine, pop culture machine, popular culture, and, and they've built a certain superstructure. But what's striking to me about the, the other side of it, the right, which is also building this sort of like intellectual, you know, superstructure over it. You know, I, there's so many people have written so many like religious based texts about about abortion, for example, and yeah. you know, I've argued the the metaphysics of life and 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 all of that. But you know, the 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 what where the politics breaks on this, I think, is on people's just genuine sort of intuition on these sorts of things, yeah. and and where you know. Again, I, I I I don't have very strong feelings about this on an on on abortion on a on a sort of rights spectrum. I find that like you know making this about rights makes it confusing because I think people's intuitions aren't aligned with the rights frame. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah. It's so kind of where it breaks down. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. and so like the successful politics is 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 one of figuring out where people's intuitions are and then trying to. I don't know, broker a compromise between the ideological poles of it. But but the interesting thing to me is that all the people writing all this, you know, like overwrought intellectual superstructure about, you know, either the the invi uh, inviolable rights of the woman versus the inviolable rights of the unborn fetus and where life begins and things like that. That's not what moves the needle in a lot of ways. So it's like, what is the role of intellectuals in <laughs> politics? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. For sure. And I this... Don't, I don't, Go ahead. No, no, but Sam, yeah, I, no, you were about I to say something answer. profound. I, I really don't. I'm so happy that you're going to jump in. <laughs> well, so I think, Sam, what you're getting at with a couple of things that you've said is these are fundamentally irreconcilable issues. Sometimes, and yeah. At least some of them are, right? So I think then you have two options, basically. One is to say they're irreconcilable and one side has to dominate the other and impose its understanding through power. The other option is to say, we're never going to be able to persuade enough people from the other side. They're always going to be there. They're always going to be part of the country, our fellow Americans. And they, they have to be able to live with their convictions and feel yeah. they can express those convictions. And we have to be able to feel that we can express our convictions. And that has to happen simultaneously. But, the, but, the but only that's way not that universal, can really, right? Yeah. Can I just say one thing before I want, mm. it's, just, it's not, you know, because there are so many, there have been so many circumstances in history where we look back at like moral impasses where one side believed something that we now think is just like so morally untenable. And, and the other side ended up winning and dominating. And then we think now like, well, that was, probably right you know i'm not saying that that's true of any you could choose different issues where it seems like slavery right like for yeah example. i'm thinking about slavery yeah. for example or yeah. segregation for example yeah. Yeah. like and so you know it's it's hard to like i i what you're saying is true it can be true about specific we can we can speculate that it may be true about particular issues but if people are just going to you know, fight it out. <laughs> there's, there's an extent to which sometimes it's like people are going to just fight it out and impose some kind of moral orthodoxy about it. And, um, and like, we're going to look back and think, uh, that it was right. Uh, you know, I, anyway, that was just, that was just the one thing I wanted to get in before I forgot, but go no, ahead. It's a, that's a very interesting point. And maybe this is a good lead in to what we've been dancing around a little bit, which is, to what extent the new right is committed to democracy, small d democracy, are they actually willing to work within the system? But you also, I think, allude to a comparable problem on the left. I don't think it's as, as much of an issue on the left. I think Republicans and conservatives are the ones who seem to be lacking in their democratic commitment more at this point. Now that might change if Trump wins in 2024, we'll yeah, have an interesting yeah. test case yeah. as to how Democrats 
react to that and to what extent they lose faith in the democratic idea if Trump doesn't win just once, but twice. I mean, that does sort of problematize <laughs> democracy if democracy can produce two existentially devastating outcomes in the two span of eight years. truly hilarious presidencies. Far too frequently forgotten that, I mean, honestly, no joke that, I mean, hilarious, not hilarious in the, in the, in the things, but no, again, like it's Trump's, Trump's a fucking comedian. He's we, like, a, we talk, he's Don Rickles, right? We, yeah, exactly. We talk on the podcast all the time about how, when, when Trump was president, it's so important to be able to have an appreciation for like the absurd and the menacing at the same time. Yes, yes. Just because you acknowledge something is absurd doesn't mean it's not menacing. Yeah, indeed. Uh, uh, anyway, so- Well, as someone who spent time with these people and, and talked to them at length about their ideological commitments, and you did cite, you did mention something you wrote in the piece that gets at this, that if politics is so existential, if all is lost, if this is the end times, then you can use that to justify working outside of the democratic system. Because if the stakes are so high, as you said, then you know it's 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 not a big jump to justify otherwise very concerning approaches, right? So help help me help walk us through here. I mean, how how much are they willing to work within the electoral process and respect election outcomes versus if they keep on losing, they're going to say, hey, we're revolutionaries. We're not working within the system. Reform yeah. is not possible. We have to refound the American Republic. Yeah. Well, I, I hope that we can get to before I have to go like your the, the sort of uh, group therapy about how concerned to be overall. But I would say about these guys, um, it depends. It depends on the person. And um, like, so a lot of these people I talk to, like they are uh, affiliated with or have gone through programs at the Claremont Institute, right? And the Claremont Institute is, John Eastman is a Claremont Institute fellow. And John Eastman wrote, uh, memos uh, justifying on a constitutional, on a flimsy constitutional basis, the idea that the vice president could give the presidency the election uh, to Trump in 2020, despite the fact that he didn't win. Um, and so intellectually, there is a, certainly a, um, uh, you know, the, the anti-democratic impulses and, and even the anti-democratic practice um, uh, are, are sort of are sort of they have some relationship with this movement, right? This movement pervades that has some kind of uh, flirtation with uh, the parts of of conservative uh, legal scholarship and so and so on that tried to help Trump steal the election, right? So that we can't deny. Um, I think that it's possible to overstate what the really um, important factor is in um, like the next election, for example, like, like it doesn't really matter what Nate Hockman thinks about, uh, excuse me, th that Nate Hockman thinks about um, whether, you know, democracy is, is worth it if we're never going to get, uh, you know, a, a sufficiently um, acceptable common good. What matters is the fact that like, what, what's the number now? Like 70, 65% of Republicans don't think, uh, think Trump, the election was stolen. Right. I mean, I don't, I don't know how high it is, but it's high. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, the relationship, the, 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 the real democratic threat comes, um, or the sort of like, yeah, the, the, the threat of, of, of non-undemocratic outcomes next time around, I think comes from the fact that the, the Trump base, the, the base which is attached to Trump for Trump reasons, not for you know, Catholic theological reasons, <laughs> is, um, is, is, is not, it does not really believe in, in um, the, the, the uh, legitimacy of the democratic process, at least as it played out last time. So um, now, I think the thing that's nasty, that's concerning to me, is that these people know that, and uh, and they uh, very well may, on account of their existential concerns for the fate of America's um, 
soul um, uh, be comfortable with the fact that all of these state legislatures are trying to kind of, uh, and some, some of these state legislatures are passing legislation that will make it easier for Trump to do what he tried to do last time, this time. And they will tell themselves that it's okay because of their high-minded um, philosophical uh, first principles. I, I think I think that's a really good way to put it because it, it's to me what's striking about this is it's, it's a crisis of legitimacy. And right now, you yeah. know, it's 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 so strong on the right, and as you said, it's like you know, sort of really staggering numbers in these in the in the in the polls about this among rank and file voters, not intellectuals, right? Yeah, it's it's um, you know the the thing about the Trump coup attempt. If that's what happened in January 6th, then that's where, you know, things were going. Um, it is, again, interesting to think about the role of intellectuals in this. Because, yeah, you, you know, you can write these flimsy legal opinions. Yeah. But, you know, even that doesn't actually, if you're writing a, if you're, you know, I, I in many ways, the Trump show until the very end was a clown show. And so, you know, you have clown lawyers writing clown legal opinions about this, that, or the other thing. I, I feel like, you know, even that somehow exists outside the realm of the important. What's striking to me is that, you know, the narrative has spread so deeply in the body politic. That's what scares me more than anything, more than the intellectuals, really, that yeah. this question of fundamental legitimacy has been breached, broached, and and uh, and is is out there and is, you know, becoming part of the sort of social fabric, right, on the right. And, and uh, you know, I, what, what Shadi alluded to, it's, you know, I mean, I don't want to do this on the one hand. On the other hand, because clearly, you know, mm -hmm. the right mm -hmm. is now actually changing, as you mm -hmm. said yourself, is doing uh, changing laws about voter registration stuff, which clearly is, a, I think, a pretty cynical and clear play that when they need to make a, make a play, they can make a play for it. Um, but... You know, on the other hand, there is this other narrative of uh, basically that the constitutional si its system itself is somehow illegitimate from the Electoral College on down, that it's biased in favor of rural states and it's undemocratic in a very fundamental way and requires a, like a lot of reform. Now, again, I don't think this is nearly as entrenched on the mainstream like center or left uh, I think it's, that's more of a, a core belief in the sort of activist class, maybe that yeah. like fundamental reform needs to happen. So I don't want to at all compare the two, at least just sort of gesture at the but fact it, that like overall we have like a serious legitimacy, legitimacy crisis. crisis, right? Yeah, 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 I can see that. I mean, I do think like as you 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 uh, were very careful not to create a, uh, <laughs> false, equivalency, a yeah. false equivalency because the, <laughs> call, believing that we need to pass reforms by legislative means to yeah. make certain <laughs> kinds of systems more democratic is like quite different from the last election was uh, a fake and uh, you know violence is justified in, yeah, 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 uh, sure. in response um, so but yeah no there's a legitimacy crisis for sure I mean um you know, on the left, we used to think we hoped that there was a legitimacy crisis that uh, would be conducive to, you know, the rise of a figure like Bernie. Uh, uh, but uh, it turned out the legitimacy crisis was not as severe in the Democratic mm. Party as it was in the in the Republican Party. Mm. Um, <laughs> they had a much better uh, handle on things than the, than the right did. So that was part one of our conversation with Sam Adler-Bell. Hope you found it as fascinating as Demir and I did. Part two is still to come, and there's a lot of juicy stuff that you guys are going to want to hear. Part two is for subscribers to Wisdom of Crowds. If you'd like to become one, we would love that. Um, and you can do that by going to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe. Not only will you get bonus episodes, but you will also be able to access paid content on the website. As some of you will know, we're not only a podcast, we are also a newsletter debate platform. We write essays, shorter pieces, have outside contributors. So we're very excited about where Wisdom of Crowds is going and give us a look.